So, question. Brittany, listeners, all of y'all. Have y'all heard of Quibi? That thing, like, failed, didn't it? Yeah, obviously this is not an ad, because we're gonna rip that bitch to shreds. (laughs) But, uh, because it's like five to seven minute TV shows. Which, who wants that? I mean, YouTube already exists. Yeah, I don't get it. But there was one show I saw a bunch of ads for, because that's what Quibi spent all their money on, is, like, ads. And there was one with, like, Queen Latifah. It had, like, Stranger Things vibes. Oh. I don't know. It was set in the 80s and something mysterious was happening and Queen Latifah was in it. Hence Stranger Thing vibes. But I was on a YouTube slash Wikipedia hole and was just looking at all the shows they had. And apparently there's one called Murder House Flip. I remember hearing about this show. I didn't know it was on Quibi. <laughs> yeah, it's literally, I guess, like 10 minute episodes about like realtors like think property brothers but also someone was murdered in the house and that's just weird and in the guest bedroom we will wash off the blood spatter from the walls and we're going to paint that a nice royal blue that will really bring in the tones of the furniture we're going to bring in here okay royal blue on uh, walls is already like bad enough let alone the blood but um yeah i I just don't get it because I'm like, 10 minutes does not even cover like, and um, yeah, she lived in the house, uh, someone broke in, killed her. Anyways, uh, now let's show you, let's show us like flipping the house, doing all things like, come on, in 10 minutes? So (laughs) underneath the house actually is where there were were a couple of bodies, but we've taken those out and we're going to build out the basement into a game room. Literally, though, like, is that what this show is about? I never got Quibi. I don't give a shit about that. Because <laughs> I guess their whole thing was like, oh, while you're waiting for the bus. And I'm like, but what about when you get on the bus? <laughs> you <laughs> like, take out your speakers and see if your bus neighbor wants to also watch about the murder house flip. Murder house flip. But yeah, it was that just caught me so off guard. And I was like, I bet there are some of our listeners who have watched it. And if you have, please tell us about it, because what the actual hell? Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And one of us lives in a murder house. Well, you kind of do. It's not me. Not I. Yeah, uh, t- apparently, like, two people in my apartment complex were murdered a couple weeks ago, so that's fun. I got to see the crime scene vehicle, like the van, outside my apartment when I was walking Max, and then like 40 police cars, and then I rode the elevator with a homicide detective, and he got off on the floor above me. So, that's all I know. I've had the crime scene vehicles at some of my past apartments, but I was never able to find any information. There was only like one cop I ever ran into, like there were never like police cars there too, so it didn't seem like it was a huge thing. Like, clearly it wasn't a murder. But that's just, it's so scary because, like, we talk about these things and they seem so far away from our reality, yet the actual reality is, no, these things are happening in and around us. And when you're faced with that being so close, like, that's pretty creepy. Yeah. I mean, when I saw that stuff happening, I actually had a friend text me um, and she was like, are you okay? I'm like, yes, why? And then she told me because she'd gotten like a news alert. It's like, oh, a murder happened at this address and it's my address. And I like found it on the news and stuff and never got any updates. Our apartment complex even sent out like, a message that was, you know, it was very sweet. They were like, we're thinking of the families and stuff. Um, and that there's no danger to us. But that's it. That's all we know. The no danger part is really important to know, though. It is. But, you know, lock your doors, y'all. Lock your doors. This is one of the reasons why we don't want anyone murdered. No, we do not. Well, we have some exciting news to share with you guys exclusively for our Patreon Blood and Wine family members. We've mentioned it In the past, but now the time has come. We're officially going to have our next live drink with us on February 5th at 8 p.m. Central. And we are really excited for you guys to join. We want to give you all a heads up. Whether you are a Patreon member, you can put this date on your calendar. Or if you're not and you don't really know what Patreon is, you can hop on to Patreon and find us. Patreon.com slash blood and wine pod that is where you can join our blood and wine family there's a lot of different tiers all tiers will have access to this live drink with us and we're so excited to see you guys to talk to you guys 
There's a lot of fun perks on Patreon, including directing your own episodes, our murder minis, which those are going to be coming back this year, you guys. We've got a lot of fun things, and we're kicking it off with this drink with us. So we really hope to see you guys there. Yes. Also, make sure to subscribe to us on whatever podcast listening platform of choice you have chosen. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Podbean, Stitcher, all the podcast sites. You could probably find us. Um, So just hit that subscribe button. That way you'll get notified every Tuesday when we upload a new episode. Well, I'm just going to jump right into this topic because it is one that is You know, there was a little bit of foreshadowing a moment ago when you talked about your neighbors being murdered, because today we're going to talk about my neighbor is a murderer. Not mine personally, but we're talking about people who live next door to murderers. That was not even planned. It just fit in, unfortunately, very, very well. And one of the points I do want to bring up, every murderer is someone's neighbor. And that's one of the things that's really scary about this. But we don't oftentimes think of that neighbor aspect. So these cases we're going to chat about today, they've got that neighbor spin, which makes them Mm -hmm. all the more horrifying. Yeah, I I like that. Every murderer is someone's neighbor, but not every neighbor is someone's murderer. That is also important to note. (laughs) Should we make a t-shirt? Every murderer is someone's neighbor. That's scary, though. Every neighbor is someone's murderer. I like that one. <laughs> I don't. I mean, yeah, that's fair. Every but, um, one of yeah. your neighbors has murdered someone. I don't know where Look you live, but you need to move. Look to your left. Look to your right. Both of those people have murdered someone. Run away. Honestly, it's kind of like how last episode we were talking about the survivor perspective on, like, these different serial killers, how that's not often something we dive into, but so many of them do have that survivor story. Yeah. The neighbor lens. I mean, yeah, that is something that every killer we talk about, there is someone who's like, oh, yeah, that's Jimmy. He was, he was a quiet neighbor. We didn't, I ran into him when taking out the trash a couple times, never really spoke. And then they found 17 bodies in his apartment. Like, that's there is someone who that's their story for every one of these cases we do yeah maybe not that specific but well i mean like john wayne gacy which is like sounded who you were talking about yet not talking about he had neighbors someone out there is like oh yeah ted bunny was my neighbor like crazy yeah but before we get into these murders who neighbor wow (laughs) wow you know okay It works. Murders who neighbor. Murderers who neighbor. Yeah. No. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Let me try that again. What I was trying to say is before we get into these neighbors who murder, I almost said it again. Um, <laughs> Let's get into our wine because apparently I need it because I'm already not thinking straight. Maybe that means I don't need it. No, I, I think that means you absolutely need it. <laughs> Tyler, what wine did you pick for this episode? Well, before I get into my wine, I want to give a huge, huge shout out and thank you to Christina because she heard my complaints about how Brittany stole the wine key and refuses to let me use it. And she got me mine. Look at this. That it rose is, gold is so beautiful. Oh my God. I love it so much. Uh, this is not the first wine I've used it on because the second I got it, I was like, I'm using this right now. It's amazing. I love it so much. So, Christina, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I literally never want to own another type of wine opener. Like, I know there's all these, like, fancy ones and whatnot, but this key is perfect. And you can quietly open a bottle of wine, which you can't do with the, like, electric ones. So let's say, I don't know, maybe you're in this completely made-up scenario. You're at your mom's. Maybe you and your older sister are at your mom's, she's gone to bed, you've had some wine, and you're like, let's have another bottle of mama's wine. Well, then you're faced with the challenge of, if you do, it sounds like you're starting a lawnmower in the kitchen. <laughs> so, Because everyone with- knows, once someone has gone to bed, the volume of anything you do multiplies by 10. Exactly. And that electric wine opener is already loud enough. So again, not saying that that happened at all. No, no, that never happens. We always buy our own wine every time we visit our mother. 
And that right then was the sound of Mama uh, turning off the podcast and being like, I'm not listening to these liars anymore. (laughs) But yes, so I love, love, love this key. Y'all are going to get to hear its beautiful glory today uh, when I open the 2019 Trader Joe's Platinum Reserve Rutherford Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley. Dear God, that sounds like a wish product. That was a mouthful. Of wine. Uh, It's about to be. So this is a bottle. I guess Trader Joe's has had it for a while. I saw an article from last year, from 2019. Wow, that is two years ago. From 2019, talking about it. This was the first time I'd ever seen it, though. It's one of their, like, bougie bottles. But it's the Trader Joe's brand. And I say bougie. This one was 15 bucks. But when you're comparing it to the same branding and stuff as their two buck chuck or their shaw organic which is like three or four dollars 15 bucks is definitely a big step up in price it is definitely which means it's probably like a 30 dollar bottle yeah so i'm excited about this one so it is from napa valley but more specifically than that it's from rutherford which apparently is some of the best vineyards in napa it's west of highway 29 And it stretches from the highway to the base of the Mayakamas Mountains. And people who know the area call it the Rutherford Bench. And it's known for, like, some of the best wines to come out of California. This one in particular, it has a ton of saturation of color, aroma, and flavor. So it's going to be one that kind of punches you across the face all the time. It's a tooth stainer, which I obviously don't like, you know... The night before, night before, the night after, you have that when even though you brushed your teeth, you wake up with just that thin purple line on your lips, on the butthole of your lips, (laughs) that's just stained. You got a stained butthole. So this one's a stainer. The nose of the wine presents as ripe bramble berries, which apparently means blackberry and raspberry, along with black cherry notes. And on the palate, you can also detect nuances of violet, vanilla, and sweet oak spices. And then it's specifically structured with these Rutherford dust tannins. So that apparently gives it its fine cocoa powder texture and expansive mouthfeel. Which cocoa powder texture just makes me think of sediment in the bottle, so (laughs) let's hope not. Hopefully not. But yeah, I'm super excited. This sounds like a really good California cab. It really does. It sounds like a very solid one. So I'm going to have to keep my eyes peeled for if this is at my Trader Joe's. Platinum Reserve. And I think they had other different varietals under their like Platinum Reserve label. But I didn't look at them. You were like, nope, I want the cab. Yep. Well, y'all will probably cut it out. But that was the squeakiest bottle I have ever heard. Or I guess squeakiest cork. It was like a screaming mouse. Oh my god, I'm just twisting the corkscrew into it. That's pretty fucked up. No, oh my god, that's fucked up. I was just saying it was a screaming mouse. Not that the... Wow, Tyler. (laughs) Okay, well, anyway, let's let's pop this open. Beautiful pop. Oh, this is a nice cork. You know, I, like probably every single other person out there who drinks wine... I have, like, this penchant for saving my corks because I'm like, ooh, I'm going to do a DIY with them. No, I have not. bags and bags of corks. You're not going to do a DIY. You'll say know, it I... forever, but you're not doing it. I want to do a DIY bath mat where you, like, slice them in half and, I guess, hot glue them to a bath mat. And so you have a nice, like, fun cork bath mat. I don't know how to cut wine corks in half. I've tried it. Apparently you're supposed to like soak them in hot water and it's easy. It's not easy and I don't want to cut off my hand or ruin my knives. So just, you know, there's that. But anyways, let me pour this. That's a pretty wine. It is. And there's a little bit of cork floating in it. It just adds a little bit of flavor. It's a uh, fiber. Oh, that smells good. What am I supposed to be smelling? And bramble berries and black cherry. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. black Betty. Bam, bam. <laughs> it was like that. Yeah. Brambles in, blackberry jam. <laughs> it smells like black velvet and that 
No, doesn't smell like jujube. It, um, God, no, it really does smell like blackberries. I mean, it looks like a really good cab. I know, I'm excited. And I'm also excited for this, like, violet notes. I feel like in nicer cabs, that's when you start to get also some floral notes layered in. Yeah. Because I feel like generally, at least from what I've seen in cabs, like, the cheapest ones are generally going to be just fruit. And then you go a little bit up and you get some of those spice notes, maybe some like tobacco or like woodiness in it. And then the really kind of higher end ones, I say higher end, I'm talking like $25 plus, is when they start to also layer in the floral. And like I said, I bet yours is equivalent to like a $30 bottle. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I guess I'll let this breathe while you open your wine. What is it? I will be drinking the 2019 Chateau Genou Bordeaux from France. And this 2019 actually rates higher than any other year so far for this wine. This wine in particular is a mixture of 60% Merlot, 30% Cabernet Sauvignon, and 10% Cabernet Franc. And this is definitely a bolder wine like most Bordeaux's are. It's a little bit higher on the tannics, very dry with a higher acidity. This one in particular, there are notes of cherry, strawberry, and raspberry. So a lot of those red fruits going on. And then also there's that oak vanilla butter that's kind of intertwined as well. Ooh, that sounds good. It's a little bit earthy. It's a little bit cocoa. And then... Depending on your palate, there's also going to be a little bit of those blue fruits, like blueberry or blackberry, which I guess blackberry is not blue, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It's one, like most of your heavier wines, it's going to be really good with some beef, some veal, some gamier meats like deer, or even chicken, because drink it with whatever you're eating, because that's what's happening in your life, and you should do it. Okay, well, a little bit of a kind of pulling the curtain on your life for all of us. Just because I had pizza tonight doesn't mean this wine isn't going to be fantastic. It means you're going to have acid reflux. I live with acid reflux. But <laughs> same. <laughs> but I'm really excited for this one. This is a new Bordeaux. I got mine from Trader Joe's. I've never seen this one there before, and so I'm excited to get into this. So I will also be using my wine key from Christina, which As Tyler said, I never shared. It's true. And I will be using this new wine aerator that Tyler got me for Christmas. It's really cool because it's like an aerator and a stopper. So like you pop it in the top of your wine bottle and it fits snugly in there. And it also has like, it's got the little pieces. So you pour it and then pop, pop on the little lid. And it has a little like netting cage thing to catch any uh, sediment. And uh, I needed that, uh, not last night, but the night before, because I was drinking wine and I got a mouthful of sediment. Literally the worst. That hasn't happened in a while. And it never will, because I have this, thanks to you. Yay! I'm definitely smelling that blueberry and that oaky vanilla notes. Ooh. This one smells really rich. I don't even know what a blueberry smells like, I don't think. Like, this one's so rich, it owns a Lamborghini. Oh, okay. So is it single? No, no, it's married with kids in college. (laughs) Is it looking for a secret that it'll pay off so I don't talk? It already has a couple of those. Okay, well, we can have another. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This wine smells really good. It's I'm saying this like I'm talking about a wine that's from the 60s. It's not. It's from 2019, back before the world started to burn. Actually, it was already burning. Yeah. I'm really excited to taste this one. This one is going to be, it's extremely full-bodied. Like, I can smell how full this wine is. So the wine already had dinner. As did I. And without further ado, I would like to top it off with my wine. Cheers. Cheers. Whoa. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was just kicked into next week. Oh my god, same. Damn. Okay, hold up. (laughs) <laughs> no, you talk. You talk. I have an um, experience here. I'm still in shock a little bit. Okay. This wine has so many layers. 
I barely even know how to describe them. You get that oakiness in the middle. It starts off with a little bit of that strawberry or maybe hints of raspberry, cherry-ish, those red fruits. Then you've got Mm -hmm. those oaky notes and it really finishes with your dark fruits. Like, holy crap, this is heavy, heavy, heavy wine. This is uh, also going to be a teeth stainer. This is not a wine you can drink quickly. This is one, oh my God, you do need that really heavy steak or some venison like this wine calls for a heavy meal i want some prime rib right now oh with like horseradish sauce and maybe some like duck fat roasted potatoes oh i didn't tell you guys this is like an eight dollar bottle oh yeah yeah this one's inexpensive and it has so much going for it i can see why this vintage has done far better than any of the other years tyler is um He's praying right now. He's praying his thanks to the wine gods. Bacchus. Dionysus. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't it like I just said the Greek and you did the Roman or the vice versa? Vice versa. Yeah. I just did the Roman. You did the Greek. Wait, did you call him August? (laughs) No, Bacchus. Oh, I was like, August, that's Caesar. Also Roman, but. No, no, no. (laughs) Bacchus. Uh, But yeah, I'm praising Dionysus. I've had a lot of wine the past decade, and um, this is some of the best wine I've had. So, how about you share a story about Neighbors Who Murder? Tyler, what case did you pick for this week? So the case I'm doing today, it is, I mean, like all of our cases, it is a heavy one, but my case is the murder of Botham Jean. And this is a case that is probably going to be, I know Brittany's very familiar with it, but probably familiar to a lot of our American audience. Especially if you're here in Texas. So the sources I used, I used the Wikipedia page for the murder of Botham Jean, a New York Times article by Marina Trahan Martinez, Sarah Mervish, and John Elligan, an ABC News article by Bill Hutchinson, and an NBC DFW article by Larry Collins. So in September of 2018, Botham Jean, he is this 26-year-old black man. He's an accountant for PricewaterhouseCoopers, also known as PwC, which they're a management consulting firm. And he was born in St. Lucia, and he had moved to Dallas, Texas for his job with PwC. So he's just this regular guy he's an accountant living in dallas he lives in the south side flats apartments which they're nice i think Brittany and i had looked at them before all of this when she was looking at moving to dallas Mm -hmm. we had yeah we looked at these his family said that he was well aware of the dangers of being a black man in america when he moved here from san lucia He was careful to make sure he was wearing Ralph Lauren dress shirts. He would drive the speed limit all the time to avoid even any kind of routine encounter with police. And in general, he just was this guy who always had a big smile on his face. He sang at church. He was just a your regular everyday guy. On September 6th of 2018, an off-duty Dallas police officer named Amber Geiger entered his apartment and fatally shot him while he was eating ice cream and watching TV in his own apartment. So Botham lived in an apartment near downtown Dallas, and Geiger, she lived directly below him on the third floor. So he's on the fourth floor, she's on the third, and it's one of those newer apartment complexes that, like, I describe it as, like, it reminds you of a cruise ship, how every floor looks the same and stuff. Right. I mean, kind of like my apartment. Where, like, the parking garage goes up to each floor, and you can get out on that floor, and the doors are inside. Yeah. So, Geiger, she was returning home. She'd had a long day of work being a police officer. And she said that she accidentally parked on the wrong floor of the parking garage. And as she walked down the hallway on the fourth floor, she didn't notice anything was different. Because, I guess, she doesn't notice the doormats being different, or the, you know apartment numbers being different i mean i know for me even though the hallways all look the same i know what my hallways doormats look like but she didn't even notice the red doormat that both of them had outside his door 
That's the, that's the other thing. It's like, not only did she not recognize the neighbor's doormats, she didn't even recognize what she thought was her own doormat. Oh, yeah. And it's a frustrating case. I mean, I I have accidentally thought my upstairs neighbor's apartment was mine. I was also completely shit-faced and uh, didn't do what's about to happen next. I've definitely gotten off on the wrong floor and it was, I wasn't paying attention, but like my key didn't work. So I didn't go in and I realized quickly like, oh, that's not my apartment. Well, the door strike plate on Botham's door was like kind of broken. So his door didn't fully latch when it was closed. So she was able to just open the door thinking it's her apartment. She said that she noticed someone inside, and she says that she drew her gun and shouted, let me see your hands. And when he started walking towards her, she shot him twice. But that's not exactly how it happened, according to other witnesses and the medical examiner. Her testimony completely conflicted with the prosecution's witnesses, including neighbors who were right there, could hear literally everything that went down, who didn't hear any kind of verbal commands or anything. No shouting of like, show me your hands, or like, hey, why are you in my apartment? None of that. Right. And the medical examiner testified that the bullets that killed Botham had a downward trajectory, which means that he was either getting up from sitting down when he was shot, or he was like cowering below her when she shot him. Either way, because he's taller than her, right? Yeah. Yeah. Either way, he's not just walking towards her. No. And I just literally, he is in his apartment. He also had a long day at work. He is sitting in front of the TV eating ice cream. Some random person barges into his apartment and shoots him. But oh my bad, I thought it was mine. That's her excuse. After she shot him, Geiger called 911. Both of them was taken to a nearby hospital where he died from his wounds. And pretty immediately, the Texas Rangers started investigating the shooting. And again, the Texas Rangers are the, like, state police and the baseball team. But the state police. This was not the baseball team doing the investigations. Like we've talked about before, they they don't really hold investigations. They just don't. Because they're a baseball team. They just hold shitty baseball games. They're not shitty baseball games. You shut your mouth. Anyway, back to my case. So after the Texas Rangers investigation... They wound up arresting Geiger three days after the shooting. Initially, she was charged with manslaughter, but thankfully it was later upgraded to murder. But because of the initial manslaughter charge and the racial aspect of the shooting, because white police officer saw a scary black man eating ice cream, oh, it's a threat. This black man sitting down in his own apartment is enough of a threat for you to straight up murder him, is her defense. But because of that, there were huge protests in the days after. The Dallas Police Department, they placed Geiger on administrative leave after the shooting and then fired her on September 24th. Then on November 30th of 2018, Geiger was indicted on murder charges by the Dallas County Grand Jury. So the manslaughter charges she was initially facing, because basically the court's decision was murder or manslaughter right in addition to the guilty not guilty manslaughter charges would have required just a proof of recklessness while murder charges require proof that there was like intent in the killing and this case was so huge because an officer actually being charged with murder is pretty rare we know it happens and so this was very different especially in texas for this to be happening Oh, yeah, because how many cases do we hear all the time where there's no indictment on the grand jury when a police officer murders a person of color? All the time. Most of the time. More often than not. Yeah. So the prosecutors in the trial, they alleged there was criminal intent for two different reasons. First, her arrival at the wrong apartment and on the wrong floor wasn't just because oh she was exhausted and like basically like mentally wasn't all there from how exhausted she was after work but it was caused by a conversation she'd had just before she got to her apartment 
with her lover trying to arrange a meeting that night. So one, obviously she's not so exhausted from work that she's like blind to seeing things because she's like, hey, let's hook up. Like, Yeah, she's on the phone or she's texting. I don't remember which one, but she's making plans. Also, she drove there. But also the second piece is that she didn't follow standard police protocol. And she's a fucking police officer. And police protocol when entering, when you like think there's a burglar inside is to call for backup. You don't enter solo with your gun drawn and just firing. And the police station's two blocks away. So if she legitimately thought there is a burglar inside my apartment, she should have just called for backup. The police would have gotten there and ideally been like, Amber, this isn't your fucking apartment. I know. If she would have just followed protocol, this wouldn't have happened. And it just... It's one of those where, like, she's walking into what she thinks supposedly is her own apartment. And, like, maybe it didn't register. But at the same time, it's like, no, you're a police officer. Like, literally, someone invading a home, you should you should be first to think, like, got to call for backup. Also, literally, you don't have the same furniture and shit. Yeah, maybe it's the exact same layout, floor plan, all that. Oh, my coat rack's not here by the door. Oh, that's not where my table is. But instead, ignoring all of that and just tunnel visioning on there's a man in my apartment. And then even going from there and just straight up murdering them. There are too many things in this case where it's like what she's saying just sounds like an excuse. Oh, yeah. And there's more. So during the trial, prosecutors showed the jury past social media posts that she'd made. One of them included a post that just said, like, kill first, die last, that she'd saved to a page she called, like, quotes and inspiration. Okay, that's fucked up. Yep, that's a police officer. Another thing that they highlighted was a text that she'd sent um, while working for the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. parade earlier that year. And one of her colleagues asked, like, oh, do you know when the parade's going to be over? And she replied, when MLK is dead. Oh, wait. So, obviously, she's racist trash. She's clearly racist. Like, you don't you don't say shit like that. You, you just no. don't. So, on October 1st of 2019, just over a year after Botham was murdered, Geiger was found guilty of murder. The jury deliberated for six hours to reach the murder verdict. And th- they also, again, were looking at the lesser charge of manslaughter, which... From my understanding, the recklessness would be like, I don't know, if you didn't look both ways when driving and hit someone, that would be manslaughter. Yeah. Involuntary manslaughter. Yeah. Like the the recklessness, though, really, really, it sounds like the recklessness has to be a full on oops, which that sounds so fucked up because it's killing someone. But yeah, she was found guilty of murder. She was the first Dallas police officer to be convicted of murder since the 1973 murder of Santos Rodriguez when a police officer murdered 12-year-old Santos Rodriguez after forcing him to play Russian roulette in an interrogation. What the fuck? Yeah, that's a case I'm going to do in a future episode because it is really, really fucked up. That will be in our episode called Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Yeah. On October 2nd of 2019, Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison after jury deliberation. Such a short sentence for murder. 10 years for murder. Yeah, that's it. Again, we talk about it in how many episodes that there are people, especially people of color, in prison for drug charges or tiny nonviolent things that get way harsher sentences than 10 years and she murdered someone. There are people in prison for marijuana possession for life sentences in states where it's now legal to buy your marijuana at a bougie store. So if that doesn't tell you how fucked up our system is, I don't know what will. Mm -hmm. So on October 16th of 2019, two weeks after the sentencing, Geiger's attorneys filed a notice of appeal requesting a new trial. Geiger is currently imprisoned in Mountain View Correctional Center. And the most recent update that I could find is from August 7th of 2020. 
and Geiger's attorneys filed an appeal of the conviction on the grounds that there was insufficient evidence to convict her of murder, and the court should either acquit her of murder or convict her of criminally negligent homicide, which obviously is a lesser term. Part of me is like, you're trying to fight this, and you got 10 years for this. I know. But yeah, apparently any updates on that, I couldn't find any, or they were on hold because of, you know, the pandemic and all. It, it's just, it will never stop breaking my heart when things like this are happening all the time. And like, this is one case that came to the forefront, but we don't need to look at this as like, oh, this is that one-off, like, it has happened. It's like, no. The shit is happening every single day. Yeah, the one-off part of this is that the officer involved was actually convicted. That Exactly, and that's what makes this case so well-known, because, like we talked about, more often than not, that doesn't happen. And I'm sorry, how many of the officers who shot and murdered Brianna Taylor when she was sleeping in bed are still walking the streets? Exactly. It's another one of those things that is such an example of, like, in America... You can get murdered for being black and eating ice cream at home or sleeping in Breonna Taylor's case or selling cigarettes or walking or existing for the crime of being black. Police officers get to murder you. And that's the precedent that has been fucking set. Both him, Sean had so much life ahead of him and he was just sitting, watching TV, eating ice cream. Yeah. There's nothing threatening about that. That is called someone living their life. That is called us every day when we get home from work and it's been a long day. I mean, shit, just imagine, just imagine if he had been chopping vegetables for a stew. What they could have done, oh, well, he had a knife for existing. I have a lot of feelings about this case, obviously. And while I'm glad she was convicted, I'm so disappointed in the sentencing. 10 years at least give mm-hmm. her 20. Like, this is ridiculous. Don't try to set, a pre- set like, this precedence of, okay, we're convicting her of murder. We're going to give her 10 years because you may as well have done manslaughter. Although, in her case, it probably would have meant probation. So, it's just so yeah. messed up. I have a lot of thoughts about this case. We all do. But these things are beyond ridiculous. And I'm so fucking fed up with them. I'm so tired that there are so many cases like this that we could do. And that's just not mm-hmm. fair. It's not okay. Yeah. And just how how awful it is seeing this while full on knowing neither of us experienced this a day in our lives. We never will. And we can have empathy and we can be supporters and allies, but we will never understand it to the full extent. No. And that is the case of the murder of Botham Jean. So, Brittany, what is your neighbor murderer Neighbors who murder, but not murderers who neighbor. But uh, yeah, murderers who neighbor case. Mine is about the serial killer, Fred West. Not Fred East or Fred North. Or South, but West. Okay. The sources I used, an article in The Guardian by Joelle Borgan, and an article on biography. And I do want to put a trigger warning out there before I dive into this case. This case does involve sexual assault, rape, and child murder. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible case. Uh, sounds like it. Joelle, who's the author of one of my sources, she lived on Cromwell Street in Gloucester, England in the 1970s. This street was filled with mostly like studio apartments and Joelle lived in one of the only like family homes that happened to be on this street. About eight doors down was number 25. And this was one of those like apartment buildings and it belonged to this builder This guy who always, there were like always like piles of sand and bricks outside this building and his name was Fred West. Fred moved into this street onto Cromwell in 1972, about the same time as Joelle and her family. And at this point, she's a young teenager. I don't know exactly what age, but maybe like 12 to 15 kind of range. Okay. One day, her mom went over to see this neighbor because she wanted to see if he could help fix her roof. So he came around, but he said he didn't really do roofs. He did basements. Like, that was his specialty. That's a very specific specialty. I mean, think about it. Basements, foundation, weight of the house. I mean, it is the opposite of the roof. So it's, you know, different science. Yeah. No, no. I totally get not being able to do roofs if you do basements. But I feel like just basements is very limited. It is really limiting. 
But he did go ahead and take a look at their basement while he was there just to see, you know, how it was. There happened to be an underground spring, so they couldn't dig the basement any further. So maybe they were like, oh, we want to expand our basement. And he's like, can't. There's an underwater spring, which is literally like an open hole in the ground underneath your home. That's kind of scary. I mean, it's just a, a waiting sinkhole into a lake underground. All of these houses had like gorgeous French windows in the front. And, you know, the entrance to the basement was in the front as well. And a lot of people would actually use their back doors to go in and out because there was this easy, like, walking path to the town square. So this street is, like, very unique. You didn't really use front doors. You used back doors. And at the front, there was a way to get into your basement. Fred was in the process of filling in this stairwell with concrete that went down into his basement. Joelle and her mom, they thought that he must be doing something to improve the property. And everyone in the neighborhood was really curious to see what 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 this was, what was going on. Oh, it's that kind of neighborhood. They're like, well, I heard Sherry got some new Tiffany lamps. <gasps> really? Well, you know, John is making his basement bigger. But not in a Sex in the City intonation like I just did on accident. <laughs> no, but they're wanting to see what's going on. Although... Time passed, and it just turns out he cut off the entrance to the basement. That's all he did. See, that's that's a red flag. I mean... Oh, I'm just going to seal up this room in my house. Yeah, just going to create this fucking tomb. Yeah. Like, well, we couldn't afford a mausoleum, so basement it is. Seal it up. So one day, her mom was on her way back to Gloucester, and she was on the train, and she started to chat with this 18-year-old girl who also happened to live on Cromwell Street. They walked home together again because, you know, they made friendly on the bus. They're walking home. And this girl told Joelle's mom that she really hated the place that she was living in where she was renting and she wanted to go find somewhere else to live. She went up to number 25, which is the one that Frank West owns, and Joelle and her mom never saw this girl again. Oh, shit. About the same time, Joelle's mom was woken up several times in the early hours by people right across her window. She would hear like a woman crying, a man talking to her, and it sounded like he was trying to persuade her to come back. Like maybe they had gotten into some kind of fight and she was leaving and he's like, no, come back home. Her mom really wanted to go see what was going on, but her stepfather didn't really want to get involved. It was just like, no, that's the neighbor's business. Like, we're not going out there. What is that mindset of like, you're hearing a domestic violence situation? Oh, well, I won't get involved. Get involved. You should, because it literally would have taken, like, if something's going on, it just takes one person to walk out and just be like, hey, is everything okay? And then whatever could have happened won't be happening anymore that night. This, though, was one of those neighborhoods where you didn't talk to the neighbors. There was no sense of community. People didn't know each other. I mean, to be totally honest, it's very similar to how a lot of us live in apartments nowadays. We don't know our neighbors. It's very different than living in, you know, like on a street. You don't talk to anyone. Mm -hmm. You maybe see them in the elevator, but that's about it. But you maybe don't even know their name and you never talk. I mean, yeah. I used to know the person who lived right above me. One, because I walked into his apartment. But two, we would like pass each other in the hall or in the parking garage and say hi. And that was it. I don't even remember his name. But other than that, I mean, I I live four feet away, you know, through a wall from another life. I have no idea who they are. Exactly. So another time, there was a teenage girl who knocked on their door at about nine o'clock one night. She asked if she could come through their house to get to the back route into town. So like I said, everyone's back door kind of led into the city, into the square. Yeah. She told Joelle and her mom that she didn't want to go through the valley or up the road past number 25. Like that building just creeped her out. She seemed really scared about something, but she didn't really say anymore. So they're like, yeah, sure. Come on through. What year is this? This was in the 70s. Okay. I'm just assuming that makes this seem more like, oh, that's a little less abnormal. Because I'm just thinking, someone, hey, can I walk through your house and go through your backyard to get to the path? Of course. Come on. That's weird. Different times. But now we're going to flash forward to 1994. Joelle, at this point, she's all grown up. She's got a son. And she decided to visit the old street that she used to live on. 
When she got there onto Cromwell, nothing looked changed. And she admitted like she really hated living there. And especially seeing that it looked exactly the same. She's like, so glad I left. Fair. A month later, Joelle was watching the six o'clock news when the story broke about Fred West. He killed 12 girls and women and buried some of them in his cellar. The same exact cellar that she and her mom had seen him filling in all those years before. He's the English John Wayne Gacy. Joelle immediately called her sister. They're just absolutely horrified because not only did they live on that street, they also were in the same age range at the time of all of his victims. They were very vulnerable to something having happened to them. And they were extremely fortunate and horrified. And it just all these emotions. Like they were glad they were okay, but they couldn't believe that they they lived here. She was just like, I can't believe we live just down the street from a serial killer. And we could have easily been his victim. Yeah. Her mother is still haunted by the 18-year-old girl who lived at 25 and, you know, made the comment, the girl she met on the train. And she's like, oh, God, I got to find another place to live. Then the girl crying, the man and woman that she heard outside, like just all of these things that started to add up from their past when they learned that their neighbor was a serial killer. God. I mean, you remember some of the neighbors we have, like, in our neighborhood that were just literally the only thing you'd say about them was like, oh, yeah, our old neighbor. Finding out, like, oh, they also had 12 bodies in their basement. Like, can you imagine getting that call and being like, Brittany, turn on the news. You'll never guess what happened at this house. No, and I never want to. So who is Fred West? Yeah, who is this guy? He became known as one of the most horrific serial killers in the United Kingdom when he and his future wife, Rose, became responsible for the dismemberment and murder of women and young girls, including two members of their own family. So a little bit of background on Fred. When he was 17 years old, he was in a motorcycle accident, which left him comatose for a week with serious head injuries. Head injury. Yep. We've talked about this before. He had a metal plate placed into his head, and it may have started to affect his behavior and his impulse control, according to some experts. He also, when he was young, incurred another head injury and possible permanent brain damage when he fell off of a fire escape at a local youth club. So multiple head injuries. Yeah. The way he behaved throughout his young adult life was very erratic, and he became known to the police for a lot of really various petty crimes. Then in 1961, he was accused of impregnating a 13-year-old girl who was a friend of his family, and he was banished from the family home. Okay, I hope more is to come from than just that, because um, listeners, y'all know this, but uh, 13-year-olds can't give consent. That's rape. Yeah, and there is more to come. Around the same time, he also became a construction worker, but he was soon caught stealing from his employer and again having sex with minors. What the fuck? So when he was at trial for the rape of the young family friend, he actually escaped a jail sentence as he claimed that he was suffering fits as a result of his head trauma, but he was convicted of child molestation. Not enough. Well, and I also just don't understand legally how stuff like that works. Like, you know, oh, his head trauma means he's not guilty of the rape, but he is still guilty of child molestation. I'm like, if... He's guilty of that. If he's guilty of one, he should be guilty of both. Yeah. Fred ended up marrying a woman named Rena Costello in November 1962, and they had their first child in 1963, and they called her Charmaine. Charmaine actually had a different father. Rena was already pregnant at the time, but Fred raised Charmaine as his daughter. Rena also had another child a couple years later named Anna Marie. And around this same time, they met a woman named Anna McFall, and they all moved together to Gloucester, where Fred found a job at a slaughterhouse, and maybe this could have contributed to his fascination with death and dismemberment. I, yeah, I could see it. I mean, he's already a pretty disturbed dude, so he got a job at a slaughterhouse. Probably not the best job. Yeah, I mean, you're surrounded by, like, death and, you know, dead animals and stuff every day. I can see how that could be a, um ideal environment for a fucked up future murderer. Wasn't it like Catherine Knight, who worked at some type of slaughterhouse? Remember, she was in Australia. He skinned her husband and tried to oh, feed him. Oh, and like made him into soup. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. 
You know, honestly, the most disturbing ones, we block those out, you guys. We do. And I feel like we also usually remember each other's more. Because, I mean, listeners, like y'all, when Brittany's telling her story, I'm just sitting here and listening. I mean, also reacting and stuff. But, like, those are the ones that stick in my mind. Because, yeah, I think we block out the horrifying research we do in a lot of ours, in a lot of our own. You have to. It's how we continue to go on. We can't. It's how we cope. <laughs> we can't remember all this shit, you guys. It's too much. And y'all shouldn't try to remember it either. Agreed. So Fred and Rena's marriage became increasingly unstable, and Rena returned to Scotland. She left her children with Fred and Anna McFall, but she returned oh. a few returned a few months later to find them living together in a caravan. And I'm kind of like, Rena, you like up and left. You up and left them. So why are you so shocked when you find out they're all like they sold the house and are like living in this caravan together? Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Like, okay. But also I'm just like living in a caravan. But also when I think caravan, I think of like... A camper? Yeah, but also like 50 of them flying down the highway (laughs) in a long ass line. I don't know if that is what a caravan is or a caravan is just a single RV. In 1967, so a couple years later, Anna McFall became pregnant with Fred's child, and she urged him to divorce Rena and marry her instead. Fred, though, did not want to divorce Renee, so instead, he killed Anna. Oh! This happened in July, and he buried her body near the caravan park, cutting off her fingers and toes, which ended up being one of his mutilation signatures. Oh my god. I mean, I guess the, like... Make it harder to identify someone. I guess so. Weird, like, fetish. Do people... I mean, I know people have toe prints. Are those used for identification purposes? I doubt it, because who... I mean, maybe in a specific case, but for the most part, who's going to end up having two toe prints that you can match up? I mean, don't you, like, footprint a baby when they're born? You do. I don't know. Do fingerprints and toe prints change from birth? Sure they do. No, they don't. I have no idea. That's a good question. Do your fingerprints ever alter in your life at a certain point? If you, I mean, if you like get a scar on your finger, but I think fingerprints are mostly made from like the movement and waves of the amniotic fluid when you're a fetus, which is why like twins don't have the same fingerprints. Oh. So I guess fingerprints don't change. Well, actually, of course they don't because how many times... That, like, we have cases where it's, like, we have a child's fingerprints. They go missing for 30 years. Then they're found. Also, how many times? I think we've had one. Or you burn them off, like, in Men in Black, when he holds onto the round sphere and it burns off his fingerprints. People do that. You can also, apparently, soak your fingers in lemon juice for, like, 48 hours. And it'll, uh, the acid will burn off your fingers. Don't do that. Or, fingerprints, not your fingers. Leave it in Uh, for... But don't do either. (laughs) Leave it in for 72 and it will burn off your fingers. I mean, maybe just don't burn off your fingerprints. So back to Rena, because you know what she did? Girl moved back in with Fred in the caravan after Anna McFall's disappearance. Of course she knew. I'm sure she knew. Within six months of Anna's death, Fred was linked to another disappearance. This was a 15-year-old Mary Bastholm who was abducted from a bus stop near Gloucester in January 1968. Although there was only circumstantial evidence that has ever been produced to corroborate this. So there was no conviction. There was, they didn't have enough to actually do anything. Then in November 1968, Fred met a girl named Rose Levitz, who was to become his next wife and lifelong accomplice. Rose was a teen when she met Fred. And soon she became pregnant with his child, and she found herself looking after his previous two children that he had had with Rena when he was sent to prison on various petty theft and fine evasion charges. Rose at this time gave birth to their daughter Heather in 1970. She is a child herself. Yep, she's a child now taking care of three children. This was a lot of pressure for her, and it was a trigger for her violent erratic tendencies, and it's believed that she murdered eight-year-old Charmaine, who was Fred's oldest child, in 1971 when she was having an outburst. Oh, God, okay. Whether this exact scenario is true or not, what we do know is that Charmaine disappeared. 
Fred was still in jail at this time, so it's believed that Charmaine's body was hidden. And then when Fred got out of prison, that's when it was dismembered. Oh my god. Fred's first wife, Rena, she came searching for Charmaine. And when she did that, she herself was strangled, dismembered, had her fingers and toes removed, and she was buried in the same general area that Fred buried his very first victim that we know of, Anna McFall. Fred and Rose were secretly married in Gloucester in January 1972, and their second daughter, May, was born in June. Their family is getting bigger, and this is when they moved to 25 Cromwell Street, which was large enough to enable them to take in lodgers to assist with the rent. So like I said, this is one of those really big homes that has what could be seen as like different apartments and areas. So they bought this house and they had people living there to help them pay the rent. What is the case we did? Oh, I think it was maybe within the past 25 episodes with the guy who kept his family in his backyard. I think it was also in England in the basement in the backyard, but he also built apartments in the house. I think it was my case. Oh my God. It was your case because he had his daughter in this like underground shelter and the neighbors like in the apartments could hear her scratching the walls. Yeah. I could hear her like screaming through the backyard. God, that's, that's the vibes this case is giving me. Yeah, this is bad. Fred committed acts of bondage and violent sex acts on many underage girls. The cellar at number 25 became his own torture chamber, and his own daughter, Anna Marie, became one of its first occupants. Oh my god. She was subjected to horrifyingly brutal rape by her father while her stepmother held her down, and this became a regular occurrence, and she was threatened with beatings if she told anyone what was going on. What the fuck is wrong with these people? Everything. In late 1972, 17-year-old Caroline Owens became the nanny of the home. Because again, they've got a lot of kids. She was incarcerated, stripped, and raped. And despite threats that she would be killed and buried in the cellar, she was able to make an escape and reported the West to the police. Charges were brought against them, but despite... Fred West's existing criminal record, he was able to convince a 1973 court magistrate that Caroline had consented to all of the activities. Caroline was too deeply traumatized over what she had survived to give a testimony, and both Fred and Rose escaped with only fines. The fact that they, you know, were like, oh, Caroline's not going to testify, then, you know, we don't know. And it's like, she already fucking told you what happened. I know. Look at your, like, victim statement. Over the next several years, Linda Gouge, Lucy Partington, Juanita Mott, Therese Siegendaler, Allison Chambers, Shirley Robinson, and 15-year-olds Carol Ann Cooper and Shirley Hubbard all became victims of the Wests. After brutal sex attacks, all of them were murdered, dismembered, and buried in the cellar under 25 Cromwell Street. In the cellar. West continued to have sexual interest in his own daughters. When Anna Marie moved out to live with her boyfriend, he then switched his attention to his younger daughters, Heather and May. Heather resisted his attentions and in 1987 told a friend about what was going on in her house. Fred and Rose responded by murdering and dismembering her and burying her in the back garden of number 25. Um. And they forced their son, Stephen, to assist in digging her grave. What the actual fuck? I think this is one of the most horrifying cases I've ever done. Because Fred and Rose have, like, no soul, no compassion, no anything. It's like they're empty murderers. That That's all they want to do. Yeah. There's no humanity in their eyes or anything. They're just monsters. Also, I know we do have listeners that are kids but to y'all or to any of our listeners who have children yourselves you know maybe tell them this but like if your friend tells you something like this you tell your parents and you tell the police both because best case scenario is you're wrong or you could save someone's life i mean i'm not putting any onus on the friend or anything like that but i'm just saying like 
stuff like this is not a secret that you should keep for someone. No, and that's why I say best case scenario is nothing happens, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, you're you're right. Based on this insane number of murders, but also attacks where people happened to get away or, you know, the conviction didn't go through, it was inevitable that someone was going to finally get through to the police and expose the activities of the Wests. Detective Constable Hazel Savage led a search at Cromwell Street in August 1992 that found pornography and clear evidence of child abuse. Fred West was arrested for rape and sodomy of a minor and rose for assisting in the rape of a minor. While they were investigating, Savage uncovered the abuse of Anna Marie, which was one of his daughters, as well as the disappearances of Charmaine and Heather, and because of that, it warranted further investigation. Rumors started to arise about what might be buried under the patio, because again, like you said earlier, someone closing off their patio, that's weird. Yeah. Huge red flags, like you said earlier. In February 1994, a warrant was obtained to search the Cromwell Street house and the garden. Police found the remains of two dismembered and decapitated young women, one whom authorities suspected might be Shirley Robinson. Fred claimed sole responsibility for the murders, and when Rose heard of his confession, she denied all knowledge of Heather's death. I mean, so the second they're like, oh, he confessed, she's like, oh... Well, in that case, I had no idea. And this is news to me. Exactly. You know, but in English accent. Even further, Fred admitted to the presence of the bodies in the cellar. He told the police, and they discovered the remains of nine individuals. Fred also revealed the whereabouts of the remains of his first wife, Rena, his lover, Anna McFall, and daughter, Charmaine. They were all buried away from the Cromwell Street residence. And as this case against them developed, Rose was trying more and more to distance herself from Fred. She claimed that she was also one of his victims, but police didn't believe she was innocent. Mm -mm. Just because of the sheer number of murders that occurred with her participation in the rapes, they were like, no, you knew about this and you helped this. On December 13th, 1994, Fred was charged on 12 counts of murder and he was taken into custody where on January 1st, 1995, he hung himself in the cell with knotted bedsheets. So there wasn't even a trial. He committed suicide. Rose went to trial on October 3rd, 1995. And this is in the middle of like this huge media frenzy. There were tons of witnesses, including her stepdaughter, Anna Marie, who testified to her participation in sexual assaults on young women. Her defense counsel tried to argue that evidence of assault was not evidence of murder, which I agree, still evidence of her breaking the law and sexually abusing these people. Yeah. And when Rose got up and testified on her own behalf, her violent nature, all of her lies and dishonesty, this became very apparent to the jury. And they unanimously found her guilty on 10 separate counts of murder on November 22nd, 1995. This is one of those cases Mm. where it's like, and that's why most of the times the person being convicted does not take the stand. Yeah. She received a life sentence, having to serve a minimum of 25 years in jail. Her sentence was later extended to a whole life order sentence by the Home Secretary, effectively removing any possibility of parole. So she will be in prison Mm -hmm. forever. And there is also a belief that Fred and Rose's victims are far more than just the 12 bodies that were found and that they were charged with. Because of the sheer number, because of what they were doing time and time again, Oftentimes, this is what happens with serial killers. It's like we have a certain body count, but we don't really believe that's it. Well, this happened for years and years, and it sounds like basically the ones they're charged with are either the ones that were easier to find or they full-on confessed to, and that's it. So, like I said, Joelle's article was what I found first, and it's how I found this case. The fact that she was Fred West's neighbor when she was a child is absolutely horrifying. And Biography had such a great recap of 
all of these horrific crimes. This was a case that I never heard of Fred West. And it's again one of those where I'm like, how did I not know about this? I mean, a lot of it's because we're not in the UK. And I think that's why I'd never heard of it. But this is absolutely horrifying. This is truly horrifying. And I think, God, I think we need to take a UK tour, find out about some more horrifying murders. Maybe in a couple months when vaccines are all out in a thing. But You know, like when we're God. allowed to actually travel to Europe because we still can't. They're on lockdown. Not just allowed, but also like past that. Like also allowed and it's responsible to. Yeah, because I mean, I think some of the most horrifying cases we've done come from the UK. And they're that level of horrifying because they're ones that we've never heard of. Like Dennis Nielsen. Which I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, and I've got to figure out how to find this series. But David Tennant is doing a series where he plays Dennis Nielsen. And that was the guy that's known as, like, the Dahmer of the UK. Yeah. And he was, like, flushing body parts down the toilet and blocked up the entire thing. Like... Well, I mean, like, the James Bulger case, which to this day is one of the most horrific cases we've ever done. So that is the case of serial killers Fred and Rose West. Well, damn. Maybe we should try to get to know our neighbors because we want to know that they're not this. Yeah, but also maybe we don't want to get to know them because, I don't know. No, it's important to get to know your neighbors, bake them a casserole, bring it when they move in, ask for your Pyrex dish back. It's what you do. This coming from someone who's never, ever done that. I have baked someone a lasagna before. A neighbor? Yes. Really? No, but I really want to. There you go. Don't lie to us, Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I really want to. I want to be that neighbor. You know what? Which I think means I want to be like a housewife, but also I'm a 28-year-old man. You don't. Am I 28? How old are you? No, I turned 28 this year. I'm not 28 yet. I'm just getting ahead of myself. (laughs) What is time? I'm just... You know, I'm already ready for this year to be over, and it's January. Welcome to the 2020s. You know what, though? Things are looking up, and they're only going to get better if we are positive and make a concerted effort to make them better. If we get involved in our community, if we focus on helping each other, that's how we make 2021 a better year than 2020 could have ever been. Yes, it will be better if we get better. God, we need to get better. Okay, But on a different note than that, if y'all enjoyed this episode, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, give us those five stars, let us know what you loved. We love hearing from y'all, seeing what y'all think. So yeah. And be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.